How many of you have ever heard someone say something like this? I believe in God. I'm a spiritual person. I just don't like organized religion. Anybody ever hear that before? Yeah, a few of you. Several of you, good. Yeah, I've heard professing Christians say this. They, they say, I believe in Jesus. You know, I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm just not a fan of organized religion. I, I have a friend that I grew up with in, in church who got to the point where he was extremely critical of any sort of organization in the church. So he, in a group of believers, decided to form their own group, which, by the way, that that right there sounds somewhat organized, right? But they decided to start a church with, with no formal organization. They didn't meet in a building. They didn't have a pastor. They did not have music. They did not have Bible study or kids ministry. They gathered together as a group of believers and just sort of let the meeting go, how the the Holy Spirit let it go. Some meetings would last 30 minutes, some two hours. Sometimes they would spend the majority of their time praying and other times they would sing. Sometimes people at at random, if they felt led, would get up and and teach. But their, their goal was not to plan or organize anything because they believed that anything organized was worldly and unspiritual. They, they believed anything that you put into a system could not be of God. One of my issues with this approach, which by the way, I have several, but one argument is that the argument that says that, that formal organization cannot be from God. That it's, that it's ungodly. I take issue with this, and the reason why is because we learn from Scripture that our God is extremely organized. He created all that is and has, has ordered it in a certain way. I mean, just read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and try to make the argument that God is not a God of order. We're told in verses 21 through 25, of Genesis chapter 1, that he created every living thing that moves according to their kinds. So he created all these different species and he made them in such a way that scientists could come later on and group them together by their physical features. He is so organized that he brings the sun up each morning and the, the moon out each evening or he keeps the earth revolving for you science people in here, okay? Everything goes on all the time like it ought to because our God is so organized. We, we see that God is organized in the way he has created and sustains us. Think about our bodies. God gave us bodies that are extremely organized in the way they function. Now, because of the fall, we do at times experience malfunction in parts of our body, right? But our bodies were created to function and keep on functioning in a predictable and organized way. Think about God's Word. Is God's Word organized? Yeah, we're, we're told in His Word that He has chosen to use people to write orderly accounts of who he is and all that he has said and done throughout 
history. Remember Luke, when he's writing to Theophilus, he's writing his first book, the Gospel of Luke. What does he say? He says, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you. So God's word is orderly. And not only do we see that he is organized in creation and in his word, but also in his church. Remember, he inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. And you have these in your spiritual growth guide, by the way. Paul wrote this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Verse 18. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You see, God desires for his church to be organized. That's the way he set it up. One body with many parts arranged by God to function together in an orderly and cohesive and organized way. So the church is to be organized. Organized. Now, there are some who take this to the extreme. Just like my friend's church was on one end of the spectrum, there are those who are on the complete opposite end who, who say that the church is an organization and it must be run like a business. And the pastor functions as the CEO and they develop these complex organizational charts with various boards and and committees and subcommittees that oversee and monitor every little detail of the church life and they provide five to six page job descriptions for every staff member and they have performance reviews four times a year and they factor in the work of the holy spirit but he must work within this complex yet organized system now that's the other extreme Both, I believe, are wrong. See, the church is not an organization. It's an organism. Now, it's to be an organized organism, but it is an organism. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The church is a body. It is an organism that is alive, living, breathing, growing, maturing, because it's made up of believers who are alive, not just physically, but spiritually who are living and breathing and growing and maturing in Christ. And it's an organized organism with many parts functioning as one body with one spirit under one head with one mission to make Christ known and to advance God's gospel everywhere. And to do this, to function as one body with many parts under one head with one mission, we got to get organized. We, we as a church have to develop ministries to equip God's people to function effectively in this way. And we have to have a designated place to meet and designated times to meet and put capable and gifted people into leadership positions in these ministries to help us succeed. We've got to be organized. And this is not just a philosophy that developed in the 20th and 21st century, folks. We see this taking place early on in the first century, in the early church. The early church, though it was an organism, it was an organized organism. Again, one body 
with many parts under one head and dwelt and empowered by one spirit with one mission. Okay? You got that? Now turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and I'll show you where we see this. We are continuing our series through Acts entitled To the Ends of the Earth. And in our passage for today, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And in this passage, we are going to see the need for the church to be organized so that it can impact the world for Christ. In the first five chapters of Acts, we see that the church was was functioning in an orderly way in that they were meeting together on a regular basis and at designated times and in designated places and they had a plan when God's people gathered together we're told they broke bread together they prayed together they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching it was like clockwork we're we're told that they had systems in place for how to meet the needs for various believers in their church. We're told that there was a system in place to collect money and goods so that they could be distributed out to those in need. They were a structured body of believers, an organized organism. And, And notice also that their organization served to accommodate the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. It it gathered around the the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Biblical church organization, get this, accommodates the work of the Holy Spirit. As God was doing a great work through His Holy Spirit in adding people to His church, we're told the church assisted Him by by putting systems into place that complemented this work. And we do that today as well, don't we? We did that in going to two services. Things were, were getting cramped in our, in our parking lot and in our fellowship areas and in our kids' areas and in our worship center. So we created an additional service to free up some room in all of those areas for more people to comfortably come to get discipled. At times, the Holy Spirit will be working in someone and and moving them in a particular way into a particular ministry, and they'll come to the staff and we'll work with them to see if there's something already in place where they can plug in or assist them in organizing a ministry so that they can head that up and, and serve in that way. We see this happening in the early church. They were sensitive how the Holy Spirit was leading and they were working and moving along with them and they did a great job accommodating that work with the right organization. Now up to this point their organization was pretty simple, alright? The apostles were the leaders, the rest of the disciples were placing themselves under the apostles teaching and following their leadership and we also learn up to this point that the apostles were the ones that were handling the issues in the church remember in acts chapter 5 peter is the one who takes the lead on dealing with ananias and sapphira but as the church continued to grow the number of believers continued to multiply and so did the issues right More people, more problems. And it finally got to the point where the apostles couldn't handle everything on their own. They could not deal with the issues that were popping up left and right and be faithful to do what God had called for them to do, which was to pray and prepare and preach. So in Acts chapter 6, in the midst of a major issue in the church, the apostles decide to deal with the problem 
by getting even more organized. And they do so by appointing strong godly leaders to handle these issues in a way that honors God. So what we're going to do for the rest of the morning is we're going to look at this passage and we're going to discuss the reason for these leaders the qualifications for these leaders, and we're also going to make mention of the list of leaders and what results from their leadership. Notice point number one, the reason for leaders in the church. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, let's stop there for just a minute. Here's the first problem, okay? Now it's a good problem, to have, but it's still a problem. They kept growing. They, they got too many people for the apostles to handle on their own. How many did they have? Well, many scholars believe it was up to ten to 20,000 at this point in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? Church had just been around a few months, and in a few months' time, it had grown from 120 to the size of Jacksonville. I mean, I cannot imagine what it was like having to deal with that kind of growth. I bet the apostles never slept during this time. I bet they stayed up to the wee hours of the morning planning how they were going to organize to minister and meet the needs of these people. And here's the thing, they were not finished. God continues to add to his church daily. And they had to make sure they had enough places in town to put people. And they had to have a plan from going from place to place and house to house teaching people. They had to have a plan on how to collect goods and money and redistribute these out. And they had to stay in tune with the needs of thousands. They had to make sure they had enough bread and wine for communion. Those those little things like that. They had a lot of stuff on their plate, but man, they were doing it. They they were. They were busting at the seams in Jerusalem, but they were doing it. We're going to see in the upcoming weeks that that God is about to allow something to happen that's going to move this large group of people out from Jerusalem and on to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But at this time, there were just believers scattered all throughout Jerusalem. And we learned in the passage that we looked at last week that these believers had filled Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus. They were doing it. The the apostles had done a great job up to this point of organizing the body of Christ to effectively do ministry in the city. But, But it had gotten too big for them And on top of that, there was a major issue that was brewing in the church that was threatening the unity of the church, which should come as no surprise to us, right? Whenever the church is making a huge impact in the world and on the verge of something even greater, the the enemy tries to attack in any way possible. We learned in the first part of the book of Acts that he uses persecution in an attempt to stop the spread of Christ's church. He also uses immorality in an attempt to discredit the church, as we learned in Acts chapter 5. And here he uses disunity in an attempt to destroy the church. We see him use these three approaches all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout church history, and he is using it today. And unfortunately, oftentimes, we play right into his hands. We, we know these three things, don't we? We've, we hear them preached about over and over again, and yet we let him do it. 
Listen, if a, if a great coach were coaching against a team with only three plays, don't you think that he could put together a defense to stop him? Don't you? Yeah. Sadly, though, that's not often true of us. We know his three plays, and we, we play in to his hands. When we get kicked back from the world, we get quiet. When, when temptation comes our way, we give in. And when things don't go our way in the church or someone says something that we don't like, we get upset and we get divided. That's what he's trying to do here in Acts chapter 6, trying to divide the church, trying to cause them to come become disunified look at the second half of verse one a complaint by the hellenist arose against the hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution so here we have the issue we, we learn that there is one group in the church complaining against another group we're told that the grecian jews the hellenist were taking issue with something that the Hebrews were doing. In this day, in the church, the church was made up of, of two different Jewish groups here, we learn. There were the Hebrews. Those were the ones who had, who had uh, they, were, they were locals. They had grown up in and around Palestine, in and around Jerusalem. And then you had what were called the Hellenist or the Grecian Jews who were viewed in this day as the outsiders. They were several generations removed from Palestine. Many were from Asia Minor, North Africa, and apparently at some time they had moved back to Jerusalem and many of them, we learned, were saved at Pentecost, right? There were numbers of different Jews that were saved, different, different groups of Jews that were saved at Pentecost, and they became a part of Christ's church in Jerusalem. And they, like the Hebrews, they were saved under Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. But the native Jews, they, they tended to look down on the Grecian Jews because they, they felt as if they were not as Jewish because they were heavily influenced by Greek culture. They, they had Greek names. So they, so they snubbed their noses at them. And, and, and so there's this friction between these two groups. And we see that clearly here in Acts chapter 6. In this passage, we learn that the Grecian Jews were upset. They have a complaint against the Hebrews. And their complaint is this. They are mad because their widows are getting the short end of the stick. In this day in Jewish culture, they did a great job caring for the widows and the poor. They had a great system in place to meet needs there. They had individuals who were sent throughout the city to receive donations for the needy, and then they would distribute those back out to those who had need. And the Hellenists are not happy. The Grecian Jews are not happy because they believe their widows are being snubbed. And notice here... Though this seems like a small, petty thing, right? Do you realize churches have been ripped apart for far less than that? It's tragic that our churches have split over whether or not we're going to have pews or chairs, the color of the carpet, whether or not we're going to keep that mural up that's been up for a hundred years, you know? It's tragic. So they're griping about one another and this issue eventually makes its way to the apostles and though the apostles 
up to this point were overseeing the ministry of the, the, the goods and food and money being given to those in need. The church had grown too big for them to oversee everything. And for whatever reason, they had missed the fact that these Grecian widows were getting slighted. So notice what they said. Look at verse 2. And the 12, notice here, Luke mentions 12, right? 12 legitimate apostles, Matthias being one of them. I'm not going to go back into that, but you see that here, okay? I just had to make that point. Summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So, so notice what we have here. They called a meeting and were told they summoned the full number of the disciples together. And they said, it's not right, it's not good for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables tables they say it's not right for us to do that now don't misunderstand what's being said here they're they're not saying it's not fair that we have to go visit these widows and care for them we got more important things to do that's not what they're saying what they're saying is it's not what is best for the church for us to serve tables it's best for us to pour our time and our energy into preaching and teaching the word of god so so notice what we learn here about the disciples the the apostles here on how they deal with this issue notice they first recognize the problem the Grecian widows were being slighted by the Hebrews and they realized their inability to deal with the issue. They must have known that this issue between these two groups would take a lot of time to deal with and by doing so, the ministry that God had called for them to do, the ministry of preaching and teaching the word of God would suffer. So they, they recognize the problem. They understand it's too much for them to handle on their own. So they call this meeting together and they say, we cannot spend all of our time running around making sure everything is divvied out fairly to thousands of people and deal with all these petty issues between the Grecian Jews and the Hebrews. If we do that, we will be abandoning what God has called for us to do, which is to pray and to prepare and to preach the word of God. They understood their calling was to teach and they needed other godly men to step in to handle these issues to keep the church strong. Folks, I've said this time and time again, I'm sure I'll say it time and time again. If all the responsibility of the church is on my shoulders or on the shoulders of our staff, we're sunk. We are sunk. For one, there's just too many needs, even here, for one set of shoulders. Number two, there are certain things that need to be done here that I'm not gifted to do. I can in no way do what Tim Howell and them do up there each and every week. And, and when things go wrong in the sound, you would not want me fiddling with stuff like that. Can't do what he does. I, I can in no way be back there and teach the kids while I'm in here teaching, right? I need you teachers. I cannot fix things that break in the church. I told them in the first service, if you ever see me with the hammer in my hand, something has gone terribly wrong, okay? Something's off in the universe if that's happening. Uh, you don't want me doing that. We need Dwight and, and Casey and KT and others to do that. And I could go on all the rest of the morning and afternoon with things I've not been gifted to do. 
that I need your help with. And if I tried to bear the weight of those things, not only would my preaching suffer because I would not have ample time to prepare and preach, but those other areas would suffer as well because this place is filled with people much more gifted in these areas than I am who need to be serving. Now, hear me when I say this. We all need to be serving those in need. But that should fall on all of our shoulders. Am I right? Yes. The apostles realize this. They say in verse 4, we got to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I like the way the New King James says this. It says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Folks, can I be honest with you? This is challenging for me. It is. Verse 4 is challenging for me. To be an effective minister of the word, one has to give themselves continually to prayer and preparation and preaching. There's a story I heard recently about a young minister in seminary, and during one of the chapel services, he had one of his favorite preachers who was scheduled to preach, and he did an incredible job in chapel, and the student went up to this well-known preacher after his sermon he said that was so good i would give the world to know what you know and to be able to preach the way you do and the pastor said right back to him that's good son because that's what it's going to take and he wasn't saying that bragging he was making the point that the ministry of prayer and preaching is a total commitment it's a total commitment the apostles understood this Though they, they knew that the Holy Spirit is the power behind their preaching, they knew that God had called for them to be completely sold out, completely committed to prayer and to preparation and to preaching. So they say, we, we got to give ourselves to those things, to prayer and preaching. And so they appointed these other leaders to take on these other responsibilities. They said, you serve the Lord by serving tables, and we will serve the Lord by serving his word. This goes right along with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, when he talks about the role of the apostles and the pastor teachers. He says their role is to serve the word and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the apostles understood this, which is why they called upon these leaders. And notice point number two, we got to move. Got behind the first service too. Point number two. Notice the qualifications given for these leaders in the church. Look at verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, let me say this. Some say that these are the qualifications for deacon here because the word serve here comes from the the Greek word diakoneo, which is where we get our word deacon from. But, But that word is actually used... Throughout the New Testament, it's used even before the church was established. And it doesn't always refer to deacons. It just refers to serving. It's just talking about serving here. And when we learn who these men are, we learn who the first two are in the first part of the book of Acts in verse 5. We see that a few of these guys were evangelists and preachers and really they, they met more of the qualifications for an elder. So you hear a lot of people talk about 
Philip and Stephen and about how they were deacons, but we're not told that here in this passage in Acts. And they really, they, they function more like evangelists and, and teaching elders, preachers. So here's what I think. I don't think the church at this time had been organized this much where the men in the church were divided up at this time into elders and deacons and they had specific categories and specific qualifications that comes later as they get more organized as they move on and grow in Paul's ministry when he distinguishes between the two and gives the qualifications for each in first Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 here I just think the apostles and the church are moving toward becoming more organized by simply calling upon leaders within the church to handle some of these pastoral responsibilities and notice the qualifications that are given notice first they say seven men they're calling upon male leadership here folks to handle these pastoral responsibilities folks male leadership is vital to the health of the church i can't say that enough i I cannot I truly believe the reason why many of our churches are in the state they're in today is because the men of God are not being the men God's called them to be in the church and in the home. They needed strong male leadership in that day, and we need it today. They also say they're to be among you. Men among you, this is key. God expects his church to find leaders for the church within the church. And I love it that we have a lot of strong male leaders here in the church. I love it that we have guys serving in ministries outside of our church. And we also have men leading small groups and Bible studies within the church and teaching our FBU classes and teaching in Nicaragua and providing strong male leadership in the home. We got a lot of that here, but we need a lot more. We need men trained up right, equipped to minister to their families and to brothers and sisters in Christ. The third thing they needed was to be solid men of integrity. They say men of good repute, of honest report. They needed to have a good reputation. They needed to be men of integrity, blameless. They needed men like that to deal fairly with these two groups of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The fourth thing they needed was to be solid spiritually. He says, full of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. Next week, we're going to focus on Stephen for the next couple of weeks. I'm excited about that. And then when we get to Acts chapter 8, we're going to be talking about Philip, and we'll get more into that point there. They also needed to be wise, men of wisdom. When you're dealing with two groups of people who are at odds with one another, who have a long history... You have to handle that situation with wisdom. You've got to have wisdom to know how to deal with people in ministry so that reconciliation takes place instead of division. I know a lot of people, they just want to rush into a situation, guns blazing, and they do so much more damage than they do good. You've got to handle situations like this with wisdom. So these are the qualifications for these leaders, and we've got a lot of leaders leading in this way today, and I praise the Lord for that, and we need more. Let's look at the list of leaders in this church. This is really neat here. Look at verse 5. 
And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Notice, these men had the approval of the apostles and the congregation. And something else I really want you to see here, get this. Do you know all of these names are Greek? All seven names are Greek names. The church got together and they chose seven Grecian Jews to lead them. Notice the the loving unity here at this church. You you would think that if they're having issues between the two groups, you get three Hebrews, three Hellenists, and have them thumb wrestle for the solution, right? That's what we normally do. Split them up and have them arm wrestle. Can't you just picture this? The Hebrew Christians getting together and saying, Hey guys, if the Grecian Jews feel like they've been shorthanded, let's choose Grecian Jews to lead us and handle this matter. Can you imagine what Satan thought at that moment? Shot down again, right? He was trying to bring about division between these two groups and what resulted was beautiful unity. Why well, I bet after that their relationships look different, don't you? Why well, I bet whatever barriers were up came tumbling down between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Notice Number four, the results from this leadership in the church. Verse six, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. They're being commissioned here. We do this with our elders and with our deacons. The laying on of hands shows that they identified with them. It shows that the unity of the church is backing these men. The church is backing these guys. They set them apart. They commissioned them, they prayed for them, and then notice what happened as a result of their ministry, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Why? First, because the apostles had a lot more time to pray and prepare and preach. And number two, the church was unified again and once again was effectively impacting the world for Christ because their focus was off of themselves and off of their problems and back on where it needed to be on the world and expanding God's kingdom and moving his kingdom out into the world. And as a result, the word of God increased. And, and notice What else happened here? This is great. We're told at the end of verse 7, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. More and more people got saved. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. And not only that, look at this shock into verse 7. This is great. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A large number of the priests in Jerusalem holding out for the Messiah came to realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is God's man and they surrendered their lives to him. What a great revival that must have been. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and God's been dealing with you on the importance of of you getting plugged into his church to bear some of this weight that we have to minister to others, to bring more order 
to the church. Listen, before you can begin to move in that direction, before you can get more plugged in to serve here, let me encourage you first to ask yourself this question. Is your life in order spiritually? That's the first question you need to have answered. Before you can be used by God to serve him in the church and bring order to the church, you must first make sure that your life is in order spiritually. Scripture is clear that without Christ, our lives are not in order. We've all sinned and turned away from the God who made us and created us to live in relationship with him. And we are not right with him, but we also learn in his word that God has gone to great lengths to set us straight. He has made a way for us when there seemed to be no way through the person and work of his son. And scripture is clear that if we will see our sinfulness and our need of a savior, if we will turn from our sins and turn to Christ and trust in him alone for our salvation, we can be made right once again with God through our faith and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus. If you've never made that decision, now's the time. Now's the time. I urge you to do that if you have not today. And I'll be praying that that decision is made in your heart and life. Let's pray.